We're starting Mark chapter 14 this morning, so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Mark 14. Um, if you don't, uh, there are Bibles that are on that table uh, back to my left, your right. Uh, feel free to grab one of those. Um, we love God's Word, and we are uh, eternally grateful for God's Word, and we want you to have a copy if you don't. And so um, if you would like to go get one of those, feel free. Uh, you're not going to distract me or anyone else around you um, if you do that. Uh, and you can turn with us or turn on to uh, Mark 14, whatever your method of Bible use is, right? Um, so we have uh, come out of a two-week, uh, I guess kind of like a, uh, I mean, it wasn't like a mini-series, but it almost kind of was, right? As we took uh, as we took Mark 13 over the course of two weeks, I told a few of you in conversation, <clears throat> excuse me, you're going to have to bear with me this morning, allergies are about to kill me. My throat hates me right now, so... <clears throat> Um, be patient. Anyway, um, we, I wish that we could have done chapter 13 in one week. Uh, but as many of you guys know, considering we spent about two hours doing it over the course of two weeks, it's probably a good thing that we didn't do it in one. So, uh, but that's where we're coming out of Jesus foretelling the destruction of the temple, um, signs of the close of the age. What are we to expect as we, uh, as we work towards the end, right? Of, of everything, right? And um, and so I hope that that was a, a helpful two weeks. I know one of the things that we said um, was that as it relates to the, the events that we see, um, we don't exactly know uh, how all of these things fit together on timeline, but one thing that we can be certain is this, that the Lord is faithful, right? That he will gather together his people, and that truth encourages us towards living lives on mission, right? Living mission. Uh, we talk about that a lot, and so I don't want to assume that when I say that, you know exactly what I'm talking about, but I would encourage you to consider the practical nature, the applicable nature of what we talk about when we talk about living on mission for you and your life. Okay, what does it look like to live mission, right? How does what Jesus has to say in Mark 13 and what God has to say in the rest of the Bible, the story of his redemption of a people, encourage us to live lives that look differently, Right. Uh, Courtney and I have been having a, a series of conversations over recent weeks about the rhythms of life. Life has rhythms, right? Like we have rhythms, we have routine and we have waves that uh, determine and dictate the way that we live and the way that we function from, you know, Sunday to Sunday. Right. Um, and one thing that I want us to continuously be aware of is how God's word speaks towards and, and shapes and informs these rhythms. Let's not allow our rhythms to be informed by the world that we see around us. That's one thing we get from Mark 13. If we do that, if we allow the world and what's going on in the world to shape our rhythms, man, we are going to be all over the place, aren't we? Because it's going to just be insane. And that is one major message from Mark 13. The world is crazy. The Lord is faithful. He will gather together his people. And so let that encourage us towards mission. I could have spoken on Mark 13 and we could have done it in like five minutes. Like why did it take so long? I guess the review is always most helpful. Um, anyway, hey, we're going to start uh, chapter 14 today and Josh Horsley is going to come and he's going to read for us. Grateful for Josh. Josh is a member here at Christ the King um, and he serves, shows up on, on Sundays when he is on, right? Uh, and works the sound in the back. So super grateful for, uh, for him and for his uh, labors and works here at Christ the King. Um, and so, uh, yeah, why don't you read for us verses 1 through 11 of Mark chapter 14. All right. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For 
they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Thanks, Josh. Hey, let's pray together. Father, thanks for your uh, word and for your faithfulness. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you would open our hearts and our minds, um, that our time of worship as your people might continue as we lean into what you have had, uh, what you have said to us, um, that we might seek to understand more uh, and better who you are, um, and that we might apply this text appropriately in our lives. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Josh. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, all right, here we go. Verses 1 through uh, 11. We are uh, seeing this morning a major contrast between um, what it looks like uh, to, uh, to, to worship Christ and how that informs our lives and what it looks like um, to desire that which is evil and oppressive in terms of the coming of God's kingdom and the light that he Brings. There's this major contrast that we're going to observe in this passage this morning. In addition, we do find a timestamp that establishes for us where we are in this week of uh, what we could probably best understand and refer to in light of where we've been as rejection, reorientation, and explanation. This is what Jesus has been doing in Jerusalem over the course of this week, um, and we get a little bit of a picture. We get a glimpse of where we are um, in this week as Jesus is now working ever more closely uh, to the cross. It's the Wednesday prior to the crucifixion of Jesus, and it is a day in which we see Again, this tension and this contrast in understanding and response to Jesus. In addition, we see this this point of providence as it pertains to the Lord. Christ's providential rule and reign. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do we observe it in this passage? Those are a few things that we are going to talk about. But we begin in verse 1 and 2. We begin in verse 1 and 2 as we are um, confronted yet again with the wickedness of sin. I feel like like every other week, like we're coming back to this as a primary point in our time in Mark, talking about sin and its wickedness, right? And its, its sinister nature. These are a few words that we're going to be using as we talk through, um, as we talk to this contrast between, uh, as you see, wickedness and worship. So let's look at verse 1 and read again together. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, him being Jesus, by stealth and kill him. 
For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And so there are these bookmarks on our passage this morning, isn't it? There's this, okay, how do we go about seizing Jesus, (coughs) excuse me, arresting him um, and killing him based on what we see in verse 1 and what we know will come to pass as the story continues, and the betrayal of Judas, right? There's these bookends in terms of the seizure of Christ, his arrest, and, um, and, his, and his death, right? And in the middle, there is this, this, this section that contrasts with this wickedness and shows us what worship, true worship, looks like, where it flows from, and the types of results. That it produces in our lives, but we begin with the wickedness of sin. We see, based on what we read in verses 1 and 2, that there is a desire from the chief priests and the scribes that is totally unlawful. All right, so when we talk about the wickedness of sin, one thing that we need to understand is that God's word dictates and determines and displays what this wickedness is, right? We can say that sin is wicked because God's word is explicit in terms of wickedness, right? Our heart Our actions, right, the way that that hearts, desires come manifest and produce, like, certain desires and even postures and, like, physical things happening, like, taking place. In the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus bring clarification uh, to the law of the Lord. But if we step aside and we go, okay, let's just not even consider uh, the Sermon on the Mount and the clarification that it provides as it relates to the desires of the chief priests and the scribes' heart. Let's not even consider what Jesus has to say, right? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that if you, um, that you've heard it said that if you, if you kill someone, like that is, that is bad, right? That's a bad move. That's a, that's a breaking of God's law. What Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is that if you hate someone in your heart, you've already killed them, right? And so there's this vastly different perspective, or perhaps this, I should say this. This is a better way to say it. A clarification from from Jesus pertaining to the law and God's intent. Does that make sense? Jesus does that in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if we step outside of, and we don't consider the Sermon on the Mount, but we simply consider the law of the Lord, that which the chief priests, the scribes, the elders would have submitted themselves to, we find that these guys are in major error, that they are in dark, dark territory. In light of what God's word has to say about this issue of seizing Christ by stealth and killing him. What does God's word have to say about, about this situation and this circumstance? Well, if we look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, we see the Lord say, you shall not murder. Right? And so you've got a people in this passage, the first two verses, that are familiar with the law of the Lord. They're familiar with Exodus Uh, Chapter 20, verse 13, as we know it, right? What we see here about about murdering and how that is always a a, a decision that God's people ought not to take upon themselves, right? As it it relates to, you know, relating and, and dealing with other people. Only this is their plan, right? Their plan is to is to murder, is to kill Jesus. Well, where else does it say things like this? Well, we can look at Exodus chapter 23, Verse 7, which says, have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death. Well, 
wait a second, right? I mean, this, this looks like this is their exact course of action, right? That which they are desiring uh, to, to take place. Well, it continues on. We can look at Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. Again, as we establish, here's what we're doing. We're establishing the wickedness of sin. Listen to what, uh, listen to what we see in Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. You ready? Here they come. Everyone get ready. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Now, I've had uh, the benefit of being in this passage throughout the week. And so, so as I've done so, and I've considered what we see taking place here in this circumstance, this situation, and what we see in Proverbs chapter 6, if you're keeping score at home, the chief priests and the scribes are seven for seven, right? As it pertains to what we see in Proverbs chapter 6. Now, if you're not a baseball fan, that's batting a thousand, and that will get you into the hall every time. Those are, that are conspiring against Christ are acting evil. Right? They're, they're, they're acting evil and they're being unjust and depraved and, and hurtful. They're, they're lying and they are sowing seeds of discord within their community. These men are, are acting miserably. And based on everything that we see from verses 1 and 2 and that which has preceded it concerning these men and their opinion of Christ, right? They are miserable because of who Christ is, because what he's saying and because what he is uh, and because what he is is doing. They are miserable. They are acting miserable. It's just this really ugly picture that we see painted in verses one and two of sin and its wickedness. But it's a very honest picture. It's a very ugly picture, but it's a very honest picture. And here's what I mean when we say that. When we talk about the honesty of what we see in verses 1 and 2 and what we have to say about the wickedness of sin displayed here in the hearts of these men that are becoming manifest by their hands, their desires, their planning, and their scheming, we can say this, that this is what sin does. Okay, does that make sense? Like this is what sin does to us. This is what sin produces in us. Right? This is what sin looks like. Sin is sinister. Right? Sin is is dark. And it oftentimes, as we see, even in the, these two verses, requires an acknowledged secrecy. When we talk about personal sins and the struggles of our own, our own hearts and the idolatry that oftentimes exists there, right? our rejection of Christ and the seeking out of the building up and the establishment of our own kingdoms, our own personal kingdoms as we seek to make ourselves God, we see oftentimes that we say things like this, right? that, that no one can know about this. 
Right? We, I have this pet sin, and I know what's going on in my life, and I know it's wickedness, and I know it's sinister nature, but no one can know. That's exactly what we see here in verses 1 and 2. Right, that, that others cannot know, that if others know that it will, it will produce an outcome that is undesirable for the people, right? For the chief priests and the scribes, there will be an uproar because Jesus is getting a lot of attention. Right, Jesus is getting a, a, a lot of attention from those who are around him. He has been over the course of the last three years, what seems to be for us three years in the gospel of Mark. But in fact, it hasn't been, so... Relax, right? But but three years of earthly ministry from Jesus, it has been it's been continual, like there's been this picking up of steam, right, that's taken place that has led the religious leaders um, to to a place of, of anger and resentment concerning Jesus and his ministry. We see sin oftentimes seeks to suppress that which is good, right? It seeks to drown out the light. This is a portrait. What we see here in the first two verses as we consider the wickedness of sin in their lives is a portrait of natural man. It's a a portrait of our tendencies without an ever-present fixation on Christ by the redeemed. Right? We say this, that there is this need for, given our natural condition, there is a need for Christ's gracious intervention in our hearts right? to rescue us from our sinful and selfish desires and to call us unto himself to save us and then, and then to provide us with a strength and an endurance and a desire to maintain fixation on him and not the things of the world. Think about what we talked about in chapter 13. In chapter 13, we said, listen, the world is a crazy place and we cannot become distracted by what's going on, right? But we need to maintain fixation on Christ and the mission of the church. We see that our desires, apart from the regeneration of our hearts, right, the Spirit's work to make us alive and to give us desires for things that are good and righteous and holy for Christ. This is our natural position. But now, because of the regeneration of our hearts, our desire is to, is to maintain fixation on Christ. Does that make sense? And and so what are some ways that we do that? What are some ways that the redeemed of God maintain fixation on Christ that then drastically transforms the way that we live our lives? Well, we abide in God's word. We we make a home in. That's what abide means. Did you know that? Abide means to make a home in. And so we consider this call to abide in God's word. We're talking about making a home in God's word. Right? Like it is our, it is our source of, 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 of conviction and, and encouragement. It's our source of, of shelter, right? As it points us back to our Redeemer and His great love for us that we sang about already this morning. Right? We abide in God's words in seasons of frustration, right? In seasons of, of doubt, in seasons of what seems to be misfortune and chaos. Where ought to be the first place that God's people run as we seek a desired fixation on him? To his word, right? We run to the word of God. 
This week that, the, that, that those in the context of Mark 14 are in is, desired to, is, is designed to be a, a week uh, for God's people to consider his salvation and their rescue. The, right, when you talk about in, verses, uh, in verse 1, when we see that it's, it's two days before Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, what we're seeing here is this time fixed in space, on the calendar by which God's people reflect on his goodness and his grace and his generosity and his power and his faithfulness and his covenant promise to deliver his people. Right, we're we're remembering the the Passover. We're remembering the Exodus. This is to be for God's people. Here, as these guys are devising this plan to seize Christ and to kill Christ, they are doing so during a week that is intended to be a time of worship. That's how wicked sin is. This is a time in which their hearts are to be directed towards the Lord, and they are supposed to be recounting and retelling stories of his great faithfulness. And instead, they are worried about seizing Christ and killing him, and they would do so if not for, number one, providence. And number two, this fear that they had from those who were gathered around given the steam that Jesus had, had acquired, had built up. If not for if not for those who were gathered around them and and thirty thousand foot picture providence of the Lord the time has not come right the time is not here Christ does not give his life on Wednesday right the time isn't here yet but but if we don't consider that then we must say that that there's a sense of of sin and wickedness that prevents the sin and wickedness of the scribes and the chief priests right. Like they're most concerned about what would happen to them in light of their seizure of Christ. And so even in their sinful desires, we see the Lord providentially working to, to, to push back the time that is set for Christ to give himself as an atoning sacrifice for his people. This is a great example of God working all things together for good, right? That there is wickedness here, that there are wicked desires here, that there is sin here, that these guys are scheming in what I imagine to be some type of underground basement of sorts, right? Like we just picture like a single light bulb like swinging back and forth, right? And they're devising this like really wicked plan. The Lord is faithful, right? God rules and reigns providentially and he pushes back. Right, he 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 pushes he pushes back so that when the appropriate time comes, Christ might lay down his life. Right, God desires. We can say this in light of what is going on contextually in these first two verses and what's going on contextually here. Right, in our lives in this day, God desires the hearts of people. Right? God desires the hearts of people and a realization of his glory that produces, get this, worship. We're talking about worship this morning. We're talking about the contrast between wickedness and worship. As we came into our time this morning, we said, listen, as we recite together the Apostles' Creed every week and as we go to God's word, right, and we, and we speak it over this fellowship into the hearts, of God's people, right? There is this sense of, of, of worship. There's this, this worshipful spirit and this posture and this attitude that's being produced. And what we see is that that is God's desire for his people. And it's always been that way. 
It's always been that way. What does God want? Does he, do you ever ask yourself that question? Like, God, what do you want? Like, what do you want from me? Here's the answer. Are you ready? This is a million dollar answer right here. He wants your heart. Right? He, he wants your heart. That's why Christ offers, offers this by way of his, his life lived as a sacrifice to the Father for us. And he produces it in us. The righteousness of Christ exposes wickedness. Do you guys get that? Right, the, the, the righteousness of, of Christ exposes wickedness, both in his enemies, those that we see in these first two verses, as well as you and I. Before, through the Spirit, enlightening our hearts and our minds to live in love for him and people. Do you guys remember? I mean, we're just a few weeks removed from the great commandment. Right? Like you, you're before the Great Commission, right? It is the Great Commandment. And it's this call to, to love God and to love people. Right? And we see again, uh, going, we're going back to, and we're revisiting this, and we're seeing that Christ makes this available. He does this, He exposes for us our sin and our need. As we sit here this morning, right? May our hearts be exposed. Right? May our hearts just be broken, may they just be peeled back like an onion, just layers everywhere until we get to this core, right? Until we get to the, the core of, of, our, of our hearts and, and our heart's desires. And we, and we see them for what they are. And we see the things that are there that are stealing, that are robbing attention from God. And then we, and we kill them. We slay them. Right? By the strength of the spirit that resides within us. We, we see our sin slayed. We see our, our, our sinful desires and the wickedness that resides within slayed. And we are made slaves, not to the world, and not to the flesh, and not to our desires, but we're made slaves to Christ. Right? Do you guys get this? It's incredible. The wickedness of sin. We've got to get on to the recognition and worship. Because this is, this is the sandwich. Right, this is the good. This is the goodness right here. Right? Okay. This is this is incredible. Let's look together at verse three. And while he, being Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. Okay, we're talking like imported perfume here, very costly stuff. And she broke the flask. And poured it over his head. This is an act of worship from her. In light of what she knows to be true about who Christ is. Okay? Let's continue on and let's see, see what happens. What's the response to the breaking of this very costly bottle of perfume? There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? Now that's a massive statement considering what this woman is, is displaying and doing. Right? It exposes the hearts of the disciples. We've just, seen, we've just seen the mind and heart of the chief priests and the scribes uh, exposed. And we're about to see the heart and mind of the disciples exposed as well, as it's contrasted with this act of worship from the Mark 14 woman. 
For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. What is Jesus foreshadowing towards here? Well, well, the cross, right? And, and, and then his resurrection and his ascension. Verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So let's acknowledge a few points. As we consider the contrast between wickedness and, and, and worship. In this passage, we see a failure on multiple fronts to recognize what Jesus has come to do. Who he is. Right, we see a failure from the chief priests and the scribes all the way to the failure of the disciples. Right? Those that are seeking to capture and kill Jesus to those who respond to sacrifice with scrutiny. Let's be clear. That's exactly what takes place here. Consider what they say. They, okay, so there's this supernatural knowledge that the Mark 14 woman possesses concerning the death of Jesus. His person and his sacrifice. There's a supernatural knowledge. We see that, and we're going to talk about it in just a moment. But in response to her understanding of the person of Christ and the work of Christ, what does she do? She breaks this imported perfume and she pours it on the head of Jesus. How do the disciples respond? They say, essentially, you're wasting it. Like, you've wasted this perfume. Now, what are the implications of their statement and their scrutiny? Well, it's this. It's that Christ is not worth right, that which has been sacrificed and poured out on him. Right? That we could have sold this. This is really expensive. We could have done things like feed the poor, right? care for the hungry, good things. right? But we would do these things. At the cost of great recognition and worship of Christ. There's a supernatural knowledge that this woman possesses pertaining to the person and work of Jesus. And in response to this understanding of what he was going to do, what he had come to do, what he is sure to do in just a few days time, she says, hey, there is nothing too costly. Right there, there's, there's, nothing too, there's nothing too costly. And if we consider this, that we see that there's a tension. Right? There's a tension between what the disciples know and understand and perceive and the way that they respond and the way that this woman, uh, what she knows and understands and, and, and perceives in light of her response. We see that there's a tension. We see that there is a clash. I love what Tim Keller says, and this is a summarization of what he says, but I'll still give him credit. He says, my friends, when God's presence comes into a life full of selfishness, right? Our lives full of selfishness. When Christ's presence, right, comes into our lives with his love, full of power, with your anxiety, there will be a clash, 
Okay, so there's this there's this picture that's being painted in this portion of Mark 14 in which we see a clash between the perceptions of the disciples and the perception of the Mark 14 woman. Right. That there's this there's this clash, there's this tension that exists and that has been produced in light of God's presence and work in her. Right. And the work that is still to be done among the disciples in verses three through eight, we see a clash between worldview and practice. We see a clash between one who gets Jesus on a self-sacrificing rescuer of sinners level and those that are closest to Jesus who are still lacking full comprehension. We see this Mark 14 woman displaying through her actions attributes that inform our understanding of worship and how it's practiced. Let me say that one more time because this is really important. We see in the Mark 14 woman displayed through her actions and attributes what informs our worship and how it's practiced. So what are a few examples of this? I've got four of them. So if you take notes, write these things down. The first thing that we see is an informed sacrifice. As we consider her worship, we see that it is an informed sacrifice. We see that it's an informed form of worship. Does that make sense? Right? It's not just like, okay, like worship, like whatever, right? Okay, but there's, a, there's an informed nature to which she is worshiping Jesus, which is, let's be clear, that's what's happening here. She is worshiping Christ in light of this realization of who he is and what he has come to do. Now, now Mark says in verse 8 that she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And so Mark makes this connection between Right? The action, the worship of this woman, and the burial of Christ following his crucifixion. But we could go, well, maybe that's just a coincidence, right? Matthew is super explicit in terms of, of vocalizing and articulating her understanding of what Jesus was going to do, and as a result, moving toward him in sacrificial, informed worship. Listen to what Matthew says in Matthew 26, verse 12. Jesus says this in Matthew's account. She has done it to prepare my body. Right? She's done it to prepare my body, that there is this, there's this intentionality In light of the information that she possesses, consider this. The 12 that are closest to Jesus are still missing his march towards the cross. And yet, from the Mark 14 woman, happy International Women's Week, right? Here we go. Like, there's this this response to Right? She sees it and she responds in this most beautiful and most unique way. In both instances, though, in Mark 14, 8 and Matthew 26, 12, we see Jesus point towards this knowledge that she possesses concerning his person and work. And so why do we say what we said in the beginning? Why are we talking about like engaging the Apostles' Creed and engaging God's Word and leaning in during our call to worship as we listen intently to these truths 
pertaining to God and what he has done. Because that is where worship begins. Okay? Do we get this? Like, that's where worship is. It flows out of this understanding and this realization of who Christ is and what he has done. And so as we as God's people engage in worship, what ought we do? I mean, we ought familiarize ourselves with the person and work of Christ, God's plan to redeem his people before the foundations of the world. We need to hear that. Right? We need to hear that God is, is, is providentially moving and acting, both outside of time and space, as well as intimately in our world today, to bring about his will and his desire for his good pleasure, to the glory of his name, and for the good of his people. Why do we need to hear that? Well, because it produces worship. Right? It produces an informed worship. Are you guys with me? Let's continue on. We see not only an informed, an informed sacrifice, an informed worship, but we see a humble posture. Man, we see a humble posture. Alistair Begg said it like this. When someone comes to grips with the amazing grace of God, which she possesses because she sees She sees what he is to do, what he is to accomplish. She is understanding his march to the cross and all of its benefits. She's she's understanding and perceiving, we would imagine perhaps, I don't want to speak speak too far ahead, but, but this resurrection, right? And his ascension, right? His empowering of his people. When someone comes to grips with the amazing grace of God, it does a number of things. It humbles our hearts. It fills us with joy, and it makes us say, I'm undeserving. Do you guys get those three things? When we come to grips with the amazing grace of God, a number of things happen, right? We, We find a humility of heart, right? Our hearts are humbled. We are filled with joy, and it makes us say that I am undeserving. See, the concern of the Mark 14 woman is not the comments from Christ's disciples. It's not the the scrutiny that she receives as a result of this act of informed, humble worship. But it's, it's an appropriate response to the king. Right, her, her concern is not the response of the disciples. Right, her, her, her response is fed out of this appropriate response to the king, this desire to respond appropriately to him in light of the understanding that she possesses. While, while they criticize her and in turn, as we've already stated, diminish the value of Jesus, she persists. And so as we consider worship, we can say this, that, that, that worship, a persistent worship is produced by this informed sacrifice and humble posture, right? That this, that this, that this persistent worship is produced, a, a, a humility that leads us to our third point, holy reverence. We see from the Mark 14 woman an informed sacrifice. We see a humble posture. And then we see a holy reverence. 
reverence begins with an understanding of the character of God and his holiness. And so if we, if we look to and we understand this attribute of holy reverence and where that comes from and what produces it, again, we are driven back to the word of God and this desire to know the person of God through his revealed word. It's, it's looking in faith to the promise of the seed of Genesis 3.15 and as a people on this side of history, Christ crucified, who, who Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to the Lord. Isn't it interesting how Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 compares the sacrifice of Christ to a fragrant offering. And here in Mark chapter 14, we see this informed, humble, reverent act of worship in which this bottle of imported nard is poured out on the head of Christ. Right, the same way that this, that this perfume filled the room, right, and led the disciples to go, Whoa, like, wait a second. We could have saved this and we could have used it for other purposes and for other means. The same way that we see this this aroma fill the room and produce a less than desirable response from the disciples in light of what they ought to know because of who they have been with. We see in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1, the fragrant offering of Christ rising up to the Father. And we know, based on the rest of the story, right, that this was an offering, it was a fragrance that was pleasing to the Father. Right, that the, that the righteousness of Christ poured out upon the cross for the forgiveness of sins, right, for, for oftentimes wicked and, and evil people is a fragrant offering to the Lord. Not only do we see an informed sacrifice and a humble posture and a holy reverence, but we see eternal gratitude that supersedes temporal possession. This is something that we talk about all the time. We see from this woman what must amount to an eternal gratitude that supersedes temporal earthly possession. Why? Well, because she takes that which is temporal and, 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 and costly and she sacrifices it. She gives it. She pours it out on the Lord in light of what she knows about him. The only way that you do this Right? Is if there is this eternal perspective that's present, right? That, that, that allows us to then say that which is temporal is to, be, is to be pushed aside or offered to the Lord, and that which eternal is to maintain like preeminence, right? It is to take center. Right? It is something that we are to look towards and to consider and to live in light of. Right? So you think about the Christian call. Like, what are we as Christians called to do? I mean, we pour out our lives. Right? Like, we, we give our lives. This is what happens, like, through this, like, this, 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 this work of, of justification and the work of the Spirit to enlighten our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears. To surrender to the Lordship of Christ as He calls us back into the fold. This is what happens. We say, as God's people, I don't live for 
for myself anymore. Right? I don't live for myself. I don't live for temporal desires. I don't live for that which is, which is fading away, which is falling apart and will 10,000 years from now amount to nothing. But we maintain fixation on that which is eternal. We see that demonstrated and displayed in Mark chapter 14 by way of this woman. J.C. Ryle said this, A crucified Savior will never be content to have a self-pleasing, self-indulged, worldly-minded people. That's incredible. Let me say that one more time. A crucified Savior will never be content to have a self-pleasing, self-indulging, worldly-minded people. And so let's add to this by saying that this people, right, these people have experiencing, having experienced the love of God will no longer be content with the shadows the pleasures of this world offer. Does that make sense? The same way that God is not interested in, right, not content with self-pleasing, self-indulging, worldly-minded people. We are no longer content as God's people with the temporal joy. Right? The false joy, these shadows of joy that the world so oftentimes offers us. Does that make sense? God is, not, God is not okay with it, and we are no longer okay with it because our hearts are transformed, and our minds are transformed, and we are fixated now again on Christ. In similar fashion to the widow of Mark chapter 12. Do you remember the widow of Mark 12? Who, who in line with all like you know, all, all the, the, you know, the, the, the have-dos, right? Or the have, uh, I mean, like, people who have things, or whatever you say, like, however you describe those people, right? Like, people who have lots of things, right? Like, she's there in the middle of them, and they're, like, giving out of their abundance, and then we see the Mark 12 woman drop in, like, two copper coins that amount to, like, a penny, and we see Christ observing her from some distance, elevating her, right? We remember her. In similar fashion, we see Jesus say of the Mark 14 woman, right, that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in her memory. She's elevated the same way that we see the Mark 12 widow elevated, the same way that we are elevated, right, not by the work of our hands or our labors, but by who Christ is and what he has done, right? This realization from the widow, from the woman and the widow of Mark 14 and Mark 12 produces a worshipful posture, a self-sacrificing posture, an eternal gratitude that supersedes temporal possession, a holy reverence, and an informed sacrifice, and so we step back and we go, okay, does this, do I see this present in my own life, right? Like, am I, are these attributes that I can pin to myself in light of the, 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 the great uh, reversal, right? This gift of grace and salvation through faith in what Jesus has, has done. We see this elevation taking place. Christ says, maintain fixation on that which is eternal. You're going to have poor, the poor with you all the time. Right? But you'll not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in her memory. This is what worship looks like. 
right? This is what, this is what worship, this is what worship looks like right here. And then we move on to verses 10 and 11. These are, this is the shortest. For those of you who time my points each week, you know, like you're not going to be here for much longer. We, we see in verses 10 and 11 a, a woeful act of betrayal. Shameful act of, of betrayal. A, a deplorable and tragic act. Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to, to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So, so think about this. Right? Think about, think about what we have just seen from this woman who offers like the most, the most precious thing that she has in terms of earthly possession to Christ. And then we see Judas in the very next scene conspiring with like the one light bulb guys, right? Uh, about betraying Christ for profit. They promised to give him money, and, and he, in turn, sought an opportunity to do exactly what they had, had discussed. Well, we see here uh, two different responses to the inevitable clash between cultural expectation, right, and, and, and a, a gospel-centered expectation, don't we? We see, two, we see this clash take place between, between these two things, between a culturally acceptable and culturally expectant life and a cross-centered life. We, in verses 3 through 9, we see what would probably have amounted to a what can I give to Christ conversation that led up to the breaking of the, of the bottle of nard, right? What can I give for Christ? That's the conversation that leads us into verses 3 through 9. In verses 10 and 11, the question is very different. And I want us to be aware of it. And I want us to be mindful of it. And we're probably, many of us, going to need to be repentant in light of it. Okay, the, the, the question in, in verses 3 through 9 is, what can I give for Christ? What can I give to Christ? The question in verses 10 and 11 is, what can I give? For Christ. Do we understand the differences there? What can I what can I give, right? In light of who, who, who Christ is, and in light of what He has done, right? To to rescue me, to to save me, to take on my penalty and my punishment, that I might, by by faith alone, receive his reward. What can I what can I give to him? Right? What can I give for him in light of all that he has given for us? The question of verses 10 and 11 is what can I get, right? Like what can I get out of this thing? What can I get out of this relationship? What, how, man, challenging, right? How, how do we approach Christ? And do, we, do we approach Christ in this, in this humble reverent posture that desires to surrender all to him, our lives, right? Like our, our possessions, everything that we have, everything that we are, or do we approach him and go, what do you have for me? What do you give me? Health, wealth, prosperity, good times, fast cars, right? Fun women, is that what we're looking for, right? I mean, what, what are you giving me? And we close with this realization. A handful, two, I think, is what we're going to stop at. I feel good about two. 
You guys okay? All right, let's close it out. The gospel makes it clear to us and, and for us that it is for it is for hearts like those displayed in this passage from one end of the spectrum to the other. It's for hearts like these that Jesus embraces the Father's plan. Now this is good news, okay? So, so hang with me. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 1 beginning in verse 7. In Him we have redemption. Just listen to this. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Christ gives himself. Okay, Christ gives himself to redeem the evil, right, and, and the unjust. Right? Christ he gives himself to redeem the depraved and the hurtful. Christ gives himself for us. Right? Christ gives himself for us to the glory of the Father. He pursues the hard heart and he demonstrates compassion to the spiritually blind, opening eyes and hearts to faith through the Spirit. He frees us. He frees us from condemnation right? due to our initial and continual rejection of the law. Romans chapter 6 verse 14 says this, for sin will have no dominion over you. Man, God's people like hear this, <laughs> right? Like the sin has no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but now, thank goodness, we are under grace. We're under grace. It's for hearts like these that Christ gives himself. And in, and in, and in turn, transforming our hearts to enjoy grace. And to sing and respond to grace. To seek to live holy lives and desired obedience out of this wonderful display that brings us into fellowship with the Father. Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. And so what do we say next? Well, we say this, that as we grasp these truths, the sacrifice of Christ, here it is, worship results. Does that make sense? Worship is the overflow. Worship is the response. Whereas the disciples chastise the Mark 14 woman, Christ appreciates her worship. He says, you are enthroned in all time. Like you, wherever the gospel is preached, like you will be remembered. This story will be told in honor of you. There's a sense in which she relates with Christ, and there's a sense in which Christ relates with her. Christ is days away from pouring himself out for her. And in her mind, grasping his sacrifice, the only appropriate response was to pour out that which she had for him. And so how will we respond? How do we respond? Hey, how, do we, how do we pour out our hearts and our, and our persons and our expectations and our desires How do we pour those out? Looking to Christ, 
worshiping him in light of what we see to be true. We see in this passage the difference in sinful humanity and our Savior. The disciples scrutinize the woman and devalue Christ, while Christ comes to the defense of his people. He models sacrifice while producing within us a heart that reflects his. Stay with me here. He elevates us so that we can worship, and then he acknowledges and he encourages this action. He enables this action. Do you know that you can worship in just a few moments when we approach the table that we might do so with joyful and hope-filled hearts in light of who Christ is and what he has given us? You know when we sing a song in just a few minutes that we can do so with joy-filled hearts because of who Christ is and what he has done for us? Christ enables this response. He produces this response. And when we understand what he has done, man, we desire to live in that and to extend that and to display that. He forgives sinners and he gives us faith and the desire to look to him for rescue by way of his sacrifice and resurrection. And we pour our lives out for him. We pour our lives out. We pour our words out. In a few moments, we're going to pour our words out. You guys get this. We're going to pour our words out. We're going to do so in light of the truths that we've proclaimed this morning from beginning to end. We're going to sing a song in just a few minutes after we take the Lord's Supper as we do each week. We're going to sing a song, and it's going to be a familiar song for many of you. The song is is called, All I Have is Christ. And this song was chosen intentionally and prayerfully, as it is every week, but I want to do a really... I want to do a job today by pointing us that direction. And one of the lines that we're going to sing, a few of the lines we're going to sing are, are this. Right? In light of what we have heard, we can, we can proclaim with, with all that we are and with a joyful posture and with a reverent posture and with a humble posture, we can proclaim. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone. Right and, and live so all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. And then this is a, this is a bold line. This is a bold statement. <clears throat> oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. Like, do we say that? Know what that, like, we really mean there? Like, do you guys really get that? Like, like, I think sometimes we, like, we get to singing along, like, you know, like, we're listening to 90s at 9, and we're just kind of going through it, right? The motions. But do you know what it means to say that? Like that is, that cannot be said lightly, not if we truly believe it, right? Not if we, if we lean into it and we offer that to the Lord in response of what he has done. You can't put the cologne back in the bottle, right? You can't, you can't put it back in. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose and let my song forever be. My only boast is you. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. And so are we going to respond that way? Do we, the, gospel, the gospel commands it, and the gospel produces it. The gospel fosters it. And so as we approach the table this morning, I want us to, I want us to consider the truths of who God is, what he has done for us, and what that means in terms of an eternal perspective for God's people. We're going to go to the table, and I want us to be considering the wickedness of sin. I want us to, to be considered this recognition and worship that follows and that is produced, that overflows in light of what we have, have heard today. And then we're going to sing.
we're going to sing as a redeemed people that really believe the things that we sing.